Dose of Leadership Podcast, Episode 109. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Richard Ryerson. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. This show is brought to you by my sponsor, Audible.com. If you're like me, you like to read, but you're having trouble finding the time to squeeze in all those great books, well, Audible.com is a perfect solution. Audiobooks are great. I never thought I would like them, but I love them now. It's a great way to get caught up. I listen to and get caught up on the book as I'm driving to work, if I'm exercising, any free time, working out in the yard, I can get caught up in all my reading. You can go to uh, my website, doseofleadership.com slash audible, and you can uh, download a free audiobook. Any audiobook they have, over 100,000 titles to choose from, you can download it for free, listen to it. You can sign up for 30 days with no obligation. If you don't like it after 30 days, you can cancel your subscription. But again, it's no risk to you. Go check out doseofleadership.com slash audible and make your smartphone smarter. I'm so happy to have Sean Aker on the Dose of Leadership today. He is the winner of over a dozen distinguished teaching awards at Harvard University, where he delivered lectures on positive psychology in the most popular class at Harvard. Sean has become one of the world's leading experts on the connection between happiness and success. His research on happiness made the cover of Harvard Business Review, and his TED Talk, which I absolutely love, is one of the most popular all-time with over 4 million views. And his lecture on PBS has been seen by millions. Sean, welcome to the Dose of Leadership podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, guys, you know, talking a little bit, I'm such a firm believer in that when I watched your TED Talk, it was just so fun and so entertaining. And um, I got to admit, one thing that I've, I've never been um, a, a big on is academics and leadership. Sometimes I find it difficult to equate the two, but you, my friend, have shown me a new light. So tell us a little bit more about yourself, how you became passionate about positive thinking and, and, uh, and leadership in particular. Well, I actually have the same uh, opinion you do oftentimes. It's that oftentimes we think about academia and leadership out in the real world as, as two separate functions, um, especially because um, there's this huge gap that starts to exist between what we've been studying in academia and what we see in the real world. A lot of our psychology experiments, if you think about them, a lot of the experiments that we have done to tell you what it's like to be human have been done on college freshmen in a psychology course in a laboratory where we can control all the variables, and that's not what life is like at all. So as I was doing some of this research, I I spent 12 years at Harvard, um, was initially interested um, in ethics. I was at Harvard Divinity School studying Uh, Christian and Buddhist ethics. Uh, I I am Christian, grew up um, in Waco, Texas, and had that background and wanted to explore another religion to see how the way in which you viewed the world, your beliefs changed not only the ethics you held, but the actions that you make in that world. And that's exactly what they were studying in the psychology department in this new field called positive psychology, which was studying not just depression disorder, which is what we spent a lot of time focusing upon, but it was focused on um, questions I was interested in, like uh, compassion and optimism and hope and leadership, all these things that we thought maybe we couldn't test, we were, we were actually trying to. Um, but 
you know, as you mentioned, that oftentimes academia, we get stuck, you know, writing these papers that are very, uh, with, uh, like, high technical language and um, on very small subjects. And so part of what I really wanted to do is to test the research we've been doing in these laboratories and see if it worked out in the real world. Right. So in the middle of the the economic downturn, I took this research out to 50 countries to see how it worked at, at companies and schools. So is that what led to the... Um I forgot to mention the, an opening about your your book, your two books, The Happiness Advantage, which came out uh, a few years ago, and then you got a, a brand new book out too that came out uh, this year. Correct? That's right. It's called Before Happiness. So, talk to me a little bit about the, number one, The Happiness Advantage, and then your your new book as well. Sure. So, the first book was based upon the research that I was doing initially at Harvard, because what I got fascinated by was that oftentimes we you know, and, and as you focus so much, and I've, I've heard some of your previous podcasts and the, the incredible guests you've been able to uh, talk to and, 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 and go through these different concepts of what causes us to create leadership and how do we create ethical leadership and how do we make it effective. Part of what I was interested in is what are we leading people towards? Um, but oftentimes we're trying to get people to become more successful, but embedded within the type of leadership style is a formula for happiness and success that when we were researching it turned out to be backwards. And that formula was that if I work harder right now, I'm going to be more successful. Right. And as soon as I'm more successful, then I'm going to be happier. Um, and if you think about it, that undergirds our managing styles, our parenting styles. Every time we say to ourselves, you know, I'm going to be so happy as soon as this project's over, or as soon as I... Um, our sales improve, or as soon as our stock price hits this, or as soon as I'm able to start this new company, then I'm going to feel happier. But as I was looking at these Harvard students, they were all told that in high school, they're all extremely successful academically, and they get into Harvard, and 50% of them realize immediately that they're below average, and that 99% of them are not going to graduate in the top 1%. So what we saw was that 80% of these students experience work debilitating depression at some point. Right. And, and, uh, and, which is scary. And, and the most frightening statistic I heard came out in 2003 from the University Health Services. It said that 10% of these incredible outliers, these, these, uh, these brilliant students, 10% of them had contemplated suicide over the previous year. Wow. Which is heartbreaking to see people with so much potential lose that connection to meaning in their life. And what I realized was this is not about Harvard. This is not about privileged Ivy League students in America. This is about how every brain in the world contemplates the connection between happiness and success. Because it turns out if we can raise your success rates your entire life, your happiness levels actually remain the same. They flatline. But if we... and, And if you think about it, every time we hit a success, we change the goalpost of what success looks like. Right? So as soon as you hit that sales target, you raise that sales target. If you double your growth this year, you try and double it again the next year. And if we keep changing what success looks like, we actually never get to happiness. But if we could switch around the formula, if we could create positive leadership that actually moves people to realize that if I can prioritize being more optimistic in the present or creating deeper social connection or being more ethically motivated about the choices I'm making at work or seeing stress as a challenge, it turns out if we could get your brain positive, you reach something we call now the happiness advantage, which is every single business and educational outcome improves when the human brain is positive. So that's what the happiness advantage is about. And in a short, you know, 
a summary of the, the, the new book, Before Happiness, was what happens even before that, that before you can start to make changes to your happiness and to your health and to your success rates at work, you first have to perceive that change is possible. So that book, the new book, is all about how do you get somebody to get to that first point, to see that change is possible in an organization or in their own lives. Gosh, that's just speaking to me. So, I mean, this, these are one of these topics, and, and when I saw your TED Talk and then and looking at the happiness advantage and, and what you're trying to say, it's one of those, it's almost like, it's almost embarrassing to admit that, God, that makes so much sense. But it's so true that we, we and I'm certainly guilty of this, of pursuing the next um, goal, the next plateau, thinking that if, if I just had that, if I just was at this income level or this position or this title, um, I would be happy. Gosh, I've spent the majority of my life doing that. And if you look around, most people are doing that. But what you're saying is it's kind of the opposite. Happiness is what drives success. So the goal is to try to figure out how to become happy in the first place. And is, exactly. It, it, yeah, it, exactly. I, I find myself doing it in different domains of my life. I know this research, and I keep finding myself saying, I, I'm about to leave in just a few minutes and go on a on, uh, uh, three talks in the next three days, and one of them has a red eye flight. And I thought to myself, well, as soon as I'm finished with that red eye this week, and it's a weekend, then I'll feel happier. And I'm like, no, that's exactly <laughs> what this research is telling us not to do. That if I'm focused upon that, I'm missing out on, first of all, being more positive this whole time. Like, as I'm going on these flights, as I'm doing this work, if I can't wait for them to get over, or if I'm thinking I'm going to be negative or stressed until they're finished, then I'm actually missing out on some really important things. I mean, this research, I didn't even know about it until I started getting into the field. We found that when the human brain is positive, you're actually 37%, uh, 31% more productive mm. than your brain is at neutral. We found that people, if we can take a salesperson who's neutral and raise them to optimistic, their sales rise across industry by 37% on average. We find a, uh, that when your brain is positive, you have a 40% higher likelihood of receiving a promotion over the next two-year period of time. We find a 23% drop in stress-related symptoms. So what we realized was that actually the greatest competitive advantage in the modern economy was a positive and engaged brain. But oftentimes we waited till we were successful to get that positive and engaged brain, and we were missing out on this incredible advantage. Okay, so take that example where you, you, you caught yourself in that mindset where, okay, if I can just get through this red eye, then I'm going to be in a happy, happier place. What are the practical, actionable things that you can do that can bring you back to kind of um, get you in that more optimistic state? Because I think so many of us, when you, if, if somebody's like you know buried in the mire, in the in the muck, in the details, and they heard what you just said, they'd be like, "Ah, oh, come on, I don't got time for any of that pie in the sky stuff." But you're saying you've got proof that the brain actually is much more functioning if you can get to that positive state. What are the actionable steps that you can do to get to that state? Well, so let me tell you about the actions, but let me tell you why it works first. We know that the human brain is incredibly quick. It can process 40 bits of information per second, but we receive 11 million pieces of information per second from all of your nerve endings. Mm. So as your brain looks at the world, you're picking and choosing a few facts, and then you're architecting an entire reality around you based upon those few facts. Um, what that means is that if I'm focused upon how stressed I might be with the uncertainty of flights, like a delayed flight or uh, uh, the, the red eye that I'm going to have to do overnight, my brain is actually picking those facts and is missing out on the entire rest of reality. And the question, and this, it was the whole reason I wrote the new book, Before Happiness, was that 
I believe that the, the facts you decide to focus upon can predict your success rates and your levels of happiness. So if I'm focusing for the next three days on that red-eye flight on, on Saturday, then I'm going to be holding and carrying that weight with me the entire time. Instead, what I want to do is to know that my brain is limited, so what I attend to will become my reality. So I'm going to focus on how grateful I am that I get to give these talks on happiness out at these organizations, that they actually invited me to come speak. That's incredible. I'm mm-hmm. going to be thinking about how excited I am that uh, my wife is pregnant right now. So uh, with our first child, and that as, you know, each day that baby's getting bigger and bigger and growing inside of her belly, I could be thinking about that. I can be thinking about the fact that we're getting paid for these talks so that there's financial income, uh, financial uh, advantage to what I'm experiencing. I could focus upon how I can read books that I really want to do or get back to people on, uh, on emails because I'm going to have all this free time because I'm going to be up in the plane instead of, you know, working in my office. And so suddenly what, what seemed like a paralyzing red-eye flight where I'm thinking about that weight, which in truth I'm probably going to sleep through most of it anyway, <laughs> instead my brain is focusing upon something that's actually going to move me forward for the next three days, making me more productive. And I think that's the key is to realize that there are multiple realities at every moment. And part of what we have to do personally and then in terms of our leadership is to find the most valuable reality, the one that actually makes us most adaptive. It doesn't have to be, and one of the things I think is crucial to this and crucial to the leadership discussion that you've been creating through your podcast is that it has to be, it has to be real. That oftentimes when people hear these ideas, they think, oh, okay, well, I'm just only going to think about the positive and nothing's going on wrong in my life and that actually leads to lower levels of, of happiness and success. Um, I, I actually spoke to a, a CEO out in Northern California. He uh, drove me to the airport after one of my talks. And he was a, he's a CEO of a top software company. And he was telling me all about his company while we were driving to the airport. And um, when we first got into the car, the, that seatbelt bell was going off because he didn't put on a seatbelt. And I, I turned him with the bell went off. I was like, you don't wear seatbelts? And he said, no, I've listened to your talk. I love your research. I'm an optimist, <laughs> which is crazy, right? Because that's not optimism. That's, that's just crazy. Right. If, you, if you believe that nothing bad's going to happen to you, you don't make the positive steps you need to make changes to your life. If you don't see any of the weaknesses on your team, you can't fix any of them. But part of what we really want people to do is to not start with rose-colored glasses, not to start with you know, um, you know, smiley faces or anything like that, to actually start with a realistic assessment of the present, both the good and the bad. And if you're missing the good while you're looking at the bad, you're not realistic either. Right. So trying to get a balance of both, but in the midst of that, maintaining the belief that your behavior matters. And that's what causes rational optimism. So, yes, there are negative things that are going on in my, in my life. There are also a lot of positive things. And I'm going to focus on whatever moves me forward the best. And what I've found is that dwelling on the negatives that I can't control has, has uh, a negative effect upon my life, whereas focusing upon the things I'm grateful for or that move me forward only helps me to be able to solve those negatives even better. Yeah, no, I like that. No, it's just, it, it makes, and that's what I love about it. I think, you know, uh, there's so many, oh, self-help and positive thinking books, but what you're talking about is that what you just said, the, the phrase, the rational optimism, which I love. And I think... Um, and that's the, the one of the best things I've learned about doing this podcast and talking to people like you and, and other thought leaders and other successful business owners 
is that the mind is so, and I've always known this, I think in our deep level we've always known this, but uh, everybody, um, God, we're our own worst enemy, where you have so many self-limiting beliefs, and the power of the mind and the power of just, it takes the same amount of energy to, to, to I think, and, and to be positive than it is to be negative. And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, it's interesting because um, our brains are, so our brains will immediately scan for threats right. and problems unless we train our brains to do something different. Um, but what we're finding is that if your brain is only looking for the mistakes and errors, that's all you see. And then as a result of that, you never see anything you could praise or recognize on your teams. You never see any of the things you're grateful for. I, I work with this tax auditor um, at KPMG, and he he told me that one time he got into trouble because he, you know, was feeling depressed at work. He was getting 20% less work done. He knew it was affecting him at home. So he, one day at lunch, decided to make a, an Excel spreadsheet and write down all the mistakes and errors that his wife had been making in their relationship so that they could talk about this. And they brought this spreadsheet home to his wife to yeah. open up a dialogue with her. And this is a guy who trained his brain as a tax auditor to look for mistakes and errors, right. which made him good at one part of his job. But when he didn't compartmentalize it, that meant that he never saw any of the positives that could actually move him forward. So I think that it does require some effort for us to move away from the default position that we've all kind of moved towards, which is, what are the threats I need to solve first? What are the problems? What are the fires I need to put out? I think we actually need to put some energy into effort into retraining our brains to also look for the things that we're grateful for, yeah. to look for the things to pray to recognize our teams. But then once we do that, the return on a on your investment of time and energy is incredible. I mean, what we're finding is that these teams that are led by these positive leaders, we're seeing the highest rates of sales by two or three magnitudes. We're finding um, productivity levels skyrocket. We find people uh, stay and work at those organizations for significantly longer, lower healthcare costs. Literally every single business outcome we can test for improves when we make that effort to create positive leadership instead of defaulting to putting out the fires. Yeah. Oh, I like that. You know, one thing that always resonated with me too, on uh, particularly on the happiness advantage, is this idea that, and I'm certainly guilty of this too, is is kind of tending to think that any non-work activity um, is worthless. And you talk about <laughs> that, you know, there is the great discussion of leisure. I mean, talk to me about that and that kind of idea that, uh, that we believe that non-work activity is worthless. Yeah, I, I, I talked to a, a stock trader actually one time, and he told me that if he saw someone smiling on a team that he knew he wasn't working hard enough. <laughs> and it's that idea that if you're doing something that's not related to work productivity, that it can act, cannot actually be valuable. Um, what we're finding is that that's actually not the case at all, and it's actually a recipe for um, lowering your potential. Because what we found is that when individuals have only one bucket of meaning, if they have only one meaning marker, and that meaning marker is how many emails did I get through today or how many sales did I have um, on my phone calls. And if that's the only thing that's perceived as productive, then every other meaning marker in their life loses its value, right? It doesn't matter if I'm spending time with my family, that's actually trading off with making money um, on these phone calls or being able to get through all these emails and I need to do these meetings that I have. What we found is that when people can diversify those meaning markers in the, their life, if they actually have multiple things that they consider to be productive, 
two things happen. First thing that happens is they actually become much more stable as leaders because you can have one area of your life actually be struggling, but if you realize you have other meeting markers, you know, I might, you know, be frustrated that I, you know, haven't been able to exercise for two or three days or, or, or for a week, but, you know, my sales and my time with my family has, has actually been improved. If you have those multiple meeting markers, you can actually use them to be able to help refill some of those buckets that are actually not full right now. But even more importantly than that, and this is where this research gets um, really exciting, you know, some of the people that I've been working with, some of these companies, places like uh, Google, actually, they uh, incentivize some of their engineers taking 20% of their time off so that they could do other projects right. that are actually non productive in the traditional sense of working on the task that they were assigned to do, but to actually be creative and innovate during those times. And what we find is not only do they come up with incredible products that the company wasn't even aware of or even thinking about, but the, the other side of it is when they return back to their work, their engagement levels rise. Yeah. So their productivity levels improve, their stress levels drop, they're actually more productive at the things that they were attempting to do in the first place. So what, what we found is that if you want to uh, extend your productivity, extend what you consider to be, um, uh, it, it, and this is uh, some of the work that was initially done by Tony Schwartz and Jim Lear. I love what they, they talked about. They said, if you want to stay in the performance zone, the best way to stay in the performance zone is actually not to stay there all the time, but to move out of that performance zone to a recovery period. Right. Because if you try and stay in, and that could be, you know, looking at Facebook, that could be going to play tennis with your friends, it could be going for a walk, which has no visible um, uh, connection to your work. But what we find is it actually allows you to stay in that performance zone longer than if you tried to stay there all the time and you burn out. And in the burnout case, you get exactly what we're seeing in this country, which is the highest rates of job dissatisfaction and disengagement right. that we've seen in the history of polling right now. So we're we're clearly doing something wrong the more that we think that we have to be working all the time. Oh, I love that. You mentioned the Wall Streeters. There's a great example of um, an experiment um, in the book, in, the, in your first book, uh, talking about uh, estimating how fortunate people would be if they were wounded in a bank robbery. Can you talk about that uh, that experiment? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a great one. I haven't talked about that one in a while. I love that one. Um, part of what you do is you take people in these experiments through different scenarios. And one of the scenarios is you walk into a bank today, um, there are five people in the bank, a robber walks in, fires his weapon once, and you're shot in the left arm. Do you consider this, as you're describing it later in the day, as a fortunate experience, an unfortunate experience, or no luck or no fortune involved? And what we found is that we actually got a pretty marked difference in the way that people respond to this. Some people saw this as extremely unlucky. They couldn't imagine how else you could see getting shot in the bank, right? Like, you got shot, you don't get shot every time you go into a bank. Um, the one I heard on Wall Street was uh, that uh, there were five other people in the bank. Surely somebody deserved it more than <laughs> more than you did, <laughs> um, which uh, I'm not sure is always the case. But uh, the other group actually saw this as fortunate because they, you know, got shot in the left arm and they're right-handed, or the fact that any of those other five people could have been a child or an elderly person who couldn't take getting shot as well as they did, or the fact that they got shot in the arm instead of the heart is incredibly fortunate. And what's interesting is it's the same external reality, 
but the way that you process it changes whether or not it paralyzes you, right? makes you afraid of the world, makes you not want to engage with people or to go into banks where you see your entirety is ruined, versus being activating, where you believe that this event gives you a whole new lease on life, you feel extremely optimistic, you feel grateful, you have time with other people, you reinvest in the work that you're doing in the first place. So what we found was that only 10% of your long-term levels of happiness are predicted based upon external events or what, uh, or just how we define your external effects, how much money you make, the position you hold, where in the world you live, if you're married or not, all of that. All of that information only predicts about 10% of your long-term happiness. 90% of your long-term happiness is a mystery to scientists unless we have information about how your brain is processing the world, because that's the other part. 90% of your long-term levels of happiness are predicted based upon how your brain processes that world. Now, when I tell people that, first of all, that means that scientifically, happiness can be a choice. Right. We don't have to just be our response to the world. We can choose it. But the other part, and this relates exactly to what you do, Richard, is that what you're, what you're helping people to do is that, yes, happiness and our mindset is a choice, but it's a choice that can be influenced by the habits we create, the habits we encourage other people to create, the environments in terms of the, the social connections that we're able to create with individuals, how we in, inspire them to make these positive changes or to see that their behavior matters. All of this now starts to come back into play, and it's not just about those externals. It's how we help people to change the way that they view where they are in the company, where what's going on in the markets or changes in the political landscape. Well, gosh, you know, I, I'm, I'm so happy I came across your work. I mean, it's very intriguing to me. And again, I've, I've always kind of been standoffish of the academia, the what I've phrased the ethereal academia piece. But you uh, put it in a practical, common sense uh, way that's got me really intrigued and want me, wants me to explore this further. And I love the idea that you, you are kind of passionate about um, kind of restoring a culture of confidence. And, and you recognize and you see that confidence, trust, and job satisfaction is really low everywhere and um, you're trying to do something about it by uh, getting us to engage and think more positively. I wish I had more time. I need to have you come back because I'd love to talk about positive leadership at some point. Do you think you could come back? I know you're running up against a clock here. you got to go to your, your speech. But would, uh, would you be willing to come back and, and we could explore that topic Absolutely. even further? Absolutely. There's so much more we could talk about. Yeah, I love this and, and the idea. So, uh, like I said, he, he has to go, folks. He's got a, a speech he's got to go to and spread this positive word of positive leadership. And uh, his books are The Happiness Advantage, which came out in 2010, and The Before Happiness, which came out in 2013. I need to check that out. And so I'll have that one read when I have you come back. Maybe we'll have you come back in a month or so if, if you're good for that. That sounds wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on and helping share this positive research. Yeah, real quick, any quick plug about where people can find you? Uh, I'll put the links to this on the post. Um, but to work in yeah, the, the best way to find me and to hear more about this research is to go to happinessadvantage.com and it has links to the TED Talk that we mentioned earlier on. So you can hear me speak about this research and it has links to a lot of the research we just talked about today. So it might be a great place to start, happinessadvantage.com. Well, Sean, I'm a, I'm a big fan of you. Thanks for coming on the show and uh, we'll talk to you in about a month. All right. Thank you so much. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, 
consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.